In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Lightspeed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight, but no more. So I'll read a book, or maybe two or three. It's such fun to hum a happy working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's... It's not just in me, it is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney, your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. 2019 continues to be a fruitful year when it comes to the release of new Disney-related books, and the trend continues with the debut of Disney Connections and Collections by Dr. James Mason, who's going to join me on the show today. So let's get straight to the interview. All right, well, welcome back to Notably Disney. Today, I am glad to bring on the show Dr. James Mason, who is a proofreader and writer who graduated from the University of Leeds in England. And he dedicated his dissertation to how adult, how adult audiences connect with and perceive Disney films. And he has now translated his passion for the subject matter of Disney films into a new book series called Disney Connections and Collections. And the first volume of this series is centered on movies. So upon reading through James's dissertation and then recently checking out his new book, I thought it would be wonderful to have James on the show to discuss his work and many insights as it pertains to Disney's massive film library. So welcome to Notably Disney, James. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having me. I was very honored to be invited on your show. Well, I'm honored to have you on, and I definitely think there's going to be a lot to discuss today between uh, both, as we were talking about before recording, your almost 400-page dissertation, which was quite uh, fascinating to read through, as well as your recently published book. But um, as I ask of many of my guests when they first joined the podcast, I'm interested in finding out how you first became interested in Disney. Um interested in Disney from an academic point of view. Um, I just kind of fell into it, which sounds a bit strange. I'd always grown up uh, watching Disney films, so I couldn't tell you pinpoint, um, you know, when I first came across Disney as a child. But I used to watch all the animations, used to collect them on uh, a video and later on DVD and now on Blu-ray. But as an academic subject, I returned to education after a few years after graduating from my undergraduate degree 
um, and I returned to do a master's uh, degree in film studies. And I just gravitated towards Disney as um, options for writing papers and presentations during my master's degree. Uh, we had a, a module on uh, documentary. And so, of course, I talked about um, Saludos Amigos um, and talked about is that a documentary or not? Um, I, my dissertation for my master's degree was about Disney's package features from the 1940s because they're uh, sorry, overlooked. Um, and then from there, that led on naturally. I never expected to do it, but it led on to a PhD. Um, and as you say, my PhD uh, took me into Disney film genres and adult audiences. Um, mainly that was because I'm an adult and I like Disney. Um, and I was just interested in why people watch Disney films if a lot of the time they're written off as being for kids. I'm sure a lot of your listeners, uh, I don't know, maybe the majority of your listeners are adults listening to this podcast um, who are interested in Disney. So they might be shocked and think uh, it's written off for kids. But um, I'm sure they've also had to defend sometimes their interest in Disney. So I was just interested in if you have to defend your interest in Disney films, then what does that do with your relationship with the films? And yeah, how do people interact with, with films when there are so many incorrect opinions about Disney films, I think. Yeah. Well, and that seems very apropos considering that we live in an era where nostalgia is so huge and we see so many different mediums, whether it be YouTube channels or podcasts or other mechanisms for people to channel their love for things that they grew up on. So I'm I'm wondering when you were in your graduate studies and you were dedicating some of your earlier projects to Disney, how how did your peers respond to that? Um, were other folks looking at anything related to Disney? Um, no, the other people on my course were looking at horror, um, which interestingly I found a lot of um, connections between horror and Disney because a lot of people just write off horror films as uh, just one big genre that they don't like. Um, as part of my research for my PhD dissertation, um, I asked adult audiences what their favourite genres were and what the least favourite genres were. There wasn't really much consensus on what favourite genre was, um, but l the least favourite massively was horror. And again, I think that, um, not to move away, I don't want to talk about horror when we talk about Disney, but there's a lot of nuance in what constitutes a horror film, if you're a horror fan, that is missed by the people who just dismiss it. And I think that's true of Disney films as well. People just dismiss them as, oh, they're cartoons, despite the fact that the majority of Disney films are live action. Um, people have this specific idea of what a Disney film is. Um, and it's based, as you say, sort of on nostalgic um, memories of watching uh, the animation, uh, the animated films and growing up, because animated films, obviously, they're for kids, right? Um, and so kids grow up watching these animations and then either, I don't know, they miss out or they just, they don't see the live action films. Well, actually, I think, I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the, the children growing up or the adults who are present, presenting their films to the children. Um, but Disney sells itself as animation. 
um, quite rightly, because that's what it was, uh, what what Disney was built on. Um, but the, the the films, the live action films, don't always get you know the McDonald's tie-ins. They don't get the uh, the spin-off TV series. They don't get the hit songs, or they don't get uh, all everything else that the Disney classics get. They don't get that attention. So you can understand why I think people have this idea of what a Disney film is, and why it doesn't necessarily match up with um, what Disney produces, which is, uh, in a nutshell, what my PhD uh, finds out, what investigates. Yes. No, you, you make some really good points there. And uh, I know I, for one, would have liked to see some Lone Ranger McDonald's toys, but I don't think those <laughs> ever came to fruition. Uh, I'm wondering, you, you talked a little bit about how animation is so closely associated with Disney because of its roots, and it really only accounts for a mere 27% of features. It, do you think there's there are other factors that account for why there is that strong idea in people's in minds of Disney equates to animation and everything else is more peripheral? Um, other than Disney itself not focusing on... Uh, anime, sorry, not focusing on the live action products quite as much as you'll see in, uh, here's a plug for my first book, um, you'll probably have noticed in there that the biggest sections in, are for uh, the animated films, they've got the most spin-offs, etc. Um, but I think also the animated films perhaps don't date as much as some of the live action films. Um, they also translate um, Sort of universally more easily as in across international boundaries um, and also they're I suppose more easier dubbed if you're talking about international boundaries uh, and, and so um, the animated films are perhaps more accessible to everyone um, sort of physically accessible but also accessible from your childhood from uh, childhood memory um, yeah does that answer any of your questions Oh, oh, absolutely. And kind of looking at things from a categorical standpoint, because I noticed one thing that was really important to you and it came across in your dissertation was for folks to try to identify what constitutes a Disney film. And among the most frequent categories uh, were the notion of family, adventure and comedy. Was did you find any of that to be surprising in terms of how individuals wanted to kind of put Disney films into boxes? Um, I think people wanted to, yeah, they wanted to de- describe Disney films as something that was uh, comforting, and I suppose they go to those sort of comforting elements in terms of the uh, the comedy. Um, being a family film, family film is massively important. Um, it's, I think family film is synonymous with Disney films. Um, more so possibly than children's film. Um, but yeah, the um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought now. Uh, I might need to come back to you. <laughs> sure, no worries. So uh, I guess, and this is probably important to really emphasize to listeners is the scale of, of your dissertation project and how many perspectives came to the table. Could you talk about basically gleaning insights from via surveys and focus groups and these other tools to have such a, a big population? 
Yes, you mean how did I go about um, finding out what people think about Disney films? Absolutely, and to also really emphasize that this wasn't just a, a handful of people. You gathered no, three several thousand. thousand. Yeah, it was uh, 3,500 and something, um, something like that. It, it's been a while since I've read my own dissertation. Uh, but yeah, three and a half thousand people filled in my online questionnaire. Um, and they were drawn from, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm based in England, um, and obviously I was writing in English, but then there were people contributing to the survey from around the world, because it uh, got onto, um, I, I shared it via Twitter and social media, and I, I did a few um, online interviews and things to promote it. Uh, what I didn't do was I didn't place the survey anywhere where I thought that Disney fans might congregate. So I didn't put it anywhere, so I don't know, Reddit specifically about Disney. Because um, I didn't want uh, the whole thing to be skewed towards people who love Disney. I wanted a, a mix of opinions in there. As it turned out, I think was it 90% of people who filled in the survey um, said that they generally enjoyed Disney films. Only 10% said they didn't. Um, but I also, alongside the 3,500 people who filled in the survey, that gave me lots of data that I could then run all sorts of numbers and figures and stats. Um, but I also asked them to give me their thoughts and opinions about why they liked Disney films, why they don't like Disney films. And then I also just asked them to tell me anything they wanted about Disney films. And I got over a thousand responses there. But then I also ran a few focus groups with people local to Leeds. Um, I had uh, sort of a group of um, old age pensioners. There was a group of um, women's institute uh, people, uh, some people from uh, the local theatre. So I had some nice groups where I could talk about people's memories and understandings of what Disney films were. Um, but that was kind of only half of the research. Was in effect, I, I did all of this audience research over here, but then over on the other side, I then went and uh, looked at the Disney films themselves. I defined what a Disney film was for my purposes, um, which was it had to be like over 40 minutes long. It had to have been released theatrically in the US. Um, what else did it have to be? Um, it had to be released by a studio that had Disney in the name. Uh, so that's um, Walt Disney Studios, Walt, uh, sorry, Walt Disney Pictures, um, Walt Disney Productions, Disney Nature. I also included Marvel and uh, Star Wars releases. There were a few, only, yeah, only a few Marvel and Star Wars releases when I did this research. Um, because they are Disney films, you find the, the toys are in the Disney stores, the characters and the rides are in the theme parks. So a lot of people, a lot of people, some people in my research took issue with the fact I was including Star Wars and including uh, Marvel within my definition of Disney film. But I, I think it's undeniable that they are Disney and they're changing the way that, that, that uh, slightly changing what Disney is, but also drawing on elements of Disney, the sort of the adventure, the, the family movie they're, they're pushing the boundaries of family movie by being sort of pg-13 rated and having a bit more 
adult content in there, but they're only alongside what everyone else is doing in Hollywood at the same time with their family movies. Um, and so once I defined what a Disney movie was, uh, for my own purposes, well, for the purposes of identifying what a Disney movie could be, I identified 390 Disney films, and then um, I started gathering information on all these 390 films to try and find out what is the definitive, what, what does a Disney film look like based on their actual um, content, based on the films that have actually been released. And then once I got that, finding out what a Disney film is based on real life, I looked at my audience data and had a look at what Disney films were based on what audiences think a Disney film is, and then compared the two. Um, and that raised some interesting results, I think. Well, let's let's maybe dive into some of that, James. Or are there any findings that you would say came across as particularly surprising in terms of whether it be individuals' favorable reactions or unfavorable reactions toward Disney films and what they represent? Um, I don't think too much surprised me. Maybe, actually, maybe I was surprised at how many people really enjoyed Disney films. <laughs> I thought that there would be a bigger percentage who didn't, uh, from the 10% who, who didn't enjoy them. But then the people who did enjoy Disney films didn't always do so um, unconditionally. Sometimes they had reservations. Um, there was the the people who really enjoy everything from Walt's time and then forget about, they're not interested in any of the new stuff. Uh, there are people who find um, the films from Walt's time to be problematic in terms of um, gender portrayals, um, uh, issues with race, issues with uh, sexuality and a complete lack of any LGBT plus content. And, that, and that's something that's only barely uh, been addressed in recent years. Um, and so people were not that interested in the old films. They preferred the new ones where Disney's trying to do something, um, trying to address some of these issues with their sort of their more inverted commas feminist uh, approaches to some of the films like maybe Beauty and the Beast the remake you could uh, point at for also for having a bit more variety in terms of um, casting in terms of uh, race and having a character who's uh, gay in there and having a be uh, Belle um, who is a bit more proactive than the animated version perhaps and um, so you have people who yes they generally enjoy Disney films but then they also can see how they have changed um, even in the animated uh, films in, in the different princesses getting a bit more um, more modern I suppose um, but then there are also a lot of people who just who didn't like Disney who just wrote them off as nope they're uh, terrible representations of women they're terrible for race they're terrible for all these other things uh, so some people could see the nuance, I suppose, in the films and not overlook the problematic nature, but can at least appreciate, yes, they are problematic, but there are also a lot of other um, uh, good points, I suppose, to, to the films. And so they enjoy them 
uh, regardless. Sure. Well, I, I thought that point as far as the perhaps the m most popular reason for why individuals did not enjoy Disney films was because of issues with race, gender, class, and representation. Do you find any connections between that and perhaps their own identities if they weren't necessarily uh, identifying as part of a uh, privileged group in society? Oh, certainly, yeah. Yeah, I think they found that the um, uh, women were more likely to have problems with how the princesses were portrayed, for example. Um, and uh, I think there were, memory serves, there were two or three people who said that they were mothers of um, children who uh, were of mixed race. And there were a lot of white princesses, and so they didn't see anything for them, for their daughters. Um, but on the flip side, you also had uh, a fantastic quote, one of my favourite quotes from any of the people who were involved in my project um, was from, I think he was a Bulgarian man who was gay, who said that Frozen helped him to come out and then put this really nice long yas queen um, <laughs> in the survey <laughs> in the box <laughs> so people are quite willing to read into Disney films from their own personal points of view. Um, I do it myself. For example, as, as I write about in the, in the thesis, I do put myself into my work as a, an adult Disney fan. Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame is my favourite Disney film. Um, and part of the reason for that is because as a gay man, I see it as a coming out story because uh, Quasimodo is um, literally has a song about being out there and and that song just resonates with me so even though disney doesn't have has barely any lgbt content um people who are lgbt uh, plus can find characters or storylines to uh, to identify with so i think it's it's too simple to sort of write disney off as oh they're bad for women they're bad for gay men they're bad for um any sort of representation that gets rid of a lot of the, the subtlety and a lot of the nuance and it, it also does a disservice to the audience it, it assumes that audiences can't um, see past a, a lot of that sort of surface uh, elements of, of Disney films and I think particularly because Disney films are held up as films for either children or families families always seems to be code for um, adults with children um, then they're held up to a higher standard and so Disney films are expected to I don't know expected to maybe teach children um, about all sorts of things that when they're really just kind of entertainment uh, sources of entertainment and so I, th I think maybe it's also unfair to judge films that are 70 80 years old because let's face it Disney films have been around since 1937 um, when times were different, it's unfair to judge these old films by today's standards. But then again, Disney keeps releasing these films that may be problematic, such as um, Dumbo, with its uh, representation of the crows in Dumbo. Um, just for one example, they will re-release the film um, and with, with the, the problematic content still there, which I don't, I'm not saying they should edit it, I don't think they should, but I think it's up to 
parents have conversations with their children about some of this problematic content if they perceive it as problematic, uh, rather than just to just you know expect Disney films to be an educator and a teacher just on their own. That makes sense. Yeah, well, and there's just so much to unpack there because you hit on so many different points that that I love to touch on. I I think one one point as far as Disney films being reflective of the eras in which they were filmed and, and took place is something that I think all of us need to be mindful of because we can't erase the past and how certain uh, groups of individuals or certain topics are presented. Uh, what what good is censorship unless, you know, you know, we're all supposed to learn from what's been done in the past so we don't repeat the same mistakes moving forward. And yeah. uh, and I also like how you, you talked about the idea of how we assign meaning and symbolism to films because sometimes films are supposed to carry one message, but they might have deeper meanings for, for other groups. And uh, what, what you discussed with Hunchback, for instance, I, when I read that, I, I immediately smiled because I, I know as a gay man, like Hunchback had so much symbolism, even though I wouldn't have realized it growing up, but the notion of just being comfortable in your own skin and who you are. I wasn't thinking about that when I was a, a four-year-old kid seeing the movie for the first time, but I know as an adult that that's the meaning that I assigned to that film. And I know kind of like what you illustrated with the participant in Frozen, that Frozen, I think in many ways, is having that same effect for uh, for another generation. So it's cool to see how, how movies, whether intentionally or not, can have that impact for people across a wide variety of identities. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad um, I wasn't, uh, what's the word? I'm glad it wasn't just me who understood that about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> it made some sense. Um, it's interesting that uh, Disney does seem to be picking up on its, um, I don't want to say social responsibility, but I can't think of a better way to to phrase it, but uh, is, is slowly starting to address things with, um, say, the character in Beauty and the Beast, um, Lafu being a bit more, um, a bit camp, more, well, not just camp, um, he gets a boyfriend, doesn't he, at the end of Beauty and the Beast, uh, unless you, you blink and miss it. Um, and then you have recent uh, Avengers Endgame, where there is a character who explicitly He's, I mean, he's an unnamed character who uh, is on screen for one scene, but at least he is talking about his boyfriend. Um, and, and so small steps seem to be made by Disney. But I think what hampers them is that if they go, I don't want to say too far, but if, if they had uh, a gay princess or a gay protagonist in one of their massive tentpole movies, how are they going to sell that in countries maybe like China that don't want to see films that have got um, LGBT leads uh, and, and Disney again is a business and so I, I think Disney's always going to be stuck um, with being I think it's the size of Disney is not going to help itself it's not going to help um, to sort of push back on some of these boundaries and some of these issues that it's, it's had to deal with well, and, and another thing Disney has to work on, too, is greater representation among so many different groups. I was really startled and surprised to see that of the Disney films, I think the, of the 390, only 15% had female lead characters. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. Yeah, that sounds about right. 
which almost seems counterintuitive considering that many individuals associate this uh, many individuals think disney is you know just for girls or or that's the false notion but in terms of representation it's very counterintuitive yeah that's one of the things i found was that um people i i asked audiences um who do you think disney films are for at this point i hadn't defined disney films for them so this was just based on their own understandings and perceptions and uh yeah people said girls and women uh, much more readily than they said boys and men um and again i think that is because Disney as an image is princesses and um, specifically animated princesses despite the fact there are only really a handful of animated princesses across 390 films um, so yeah the, it, it did seem counterintuitive that when you look at the number of female leads and then other research has been done um, about how many uh, lines uh, Disney princesses specifically speak in their films um, and it, it's very few so even though there are female leads they're not necessarily getting the bulk of the lines or they're getting as much to do um, yeah I, I think that is definitely something that Disney is aware of and is working to correct and I think it is easier for Disney to deal with that than it is for them to deal with uh, other minorities um, so I think we'll see more sort of action on that front. What I quite liked, what Disney has done with uh, the Star Wars series, is uh, putting front and centre um, the actors. Well, they've put quite a, a multiracial cast together in, in the front of their Star Wars films, and they've put um, women at the forefront. And I'm sure you've uh, you're aware of some of the. Um, trolls I'm gonna say who live on the internet who can't cope with this sort of diversity um, but I think that because Disney's got this Star Wars property and it's gonna almost guarantee that millions and millions of people are gonna be going to see it see these films that they can afford to sort of take these risks you know what I mean oh yes you know I completely agree I think that's a very accessible way of of having that representation because you're right it's an it's a known quantity that star wars is going to perform pretty well regardless you know maybe you take solo a star wars story out of the mix um but uh, yeah. i quite enjoyed that um, yeah. but nonetheless you know it's interesting too it's not only who we see on the screen but also behind the screen and there's such a, a paucity of female directors uh people of color as well as other groups who are responsible for directing these movies. And I, I wonder, like we're seeing, you know, A Wrinkle in Time was by Ava DuVernay, uh, the co-director of Captain Marvel, Anna Bowden, uh, a woman. But we're, we're seeing more of these examples, but it's still, it's still not enough. Do, do you think that Disney is going to be shifting more into having that representation behind the screen as well? I hope so. I think that is um, not just a problem for Disney. It's a problem that we've seen across Hollywood studios, um, and not just Hollywood studios, across film studios around the world. Um, and we're seeing it with uh, various movements. Um, but perhaps, again, Disney is held up uh, or, or is 
seen in a different light or is held up to a, a different standard to other studios because they've got such re name recognition. They've also, you know, saturating the box office. Um, there must be at least four or five Disney released films in my local multiplex right now because uh, they, they just keep releasing them. They don't seem to go away, uh, which is fine. But, you know, I, I like to watch other films too. Um, but I think because the, the thing with Disney is it's got such recognition, name recognition. I don't know how many podcasts there are out there about Disney. I imagine a heck of a lot. But how many are there talking about the output of Sony or the output of, um, I can't even think of them off the top of my head, Paramount or um, Warner Brothers. Um, Disney's got just this rich history and this uh, cultural dominance that the other studios just can't help to ma can't sort of hope to match, particularly at the, mo at the moment when Disney is buying up uh, 20th Century Fox. So yeah, I, th I think Disney's held to higher standards, and I think they're maybe, maybe they're realizing that. Um, and uh, but at least they are addressing the issue. Sure. Well, and and Disney has such a, a global reach because of its acquisitions. I, I was really. Uh, kind of laughing at, at one point in, in your dissertation where you, one of the participants said, you know, I, I can't really separate what's a Pixar film from a Disney film because it's almost synonymous. Yes. And we live in this age where unless someone is very mindful about the different brands, it, it becomes kind of blurry as far as what is this division versus that division. And, you know, certainly the Spider-Man issue as far as it being part of the MCU, but yet distribute like a sony thing it's it's very complex yes and that confused people um not with spider-man but with deadpool because deadpool is a 20th century fox product so i guess is is now being folded into disney um but at the time it was released with all of its swearing and bloody violence it wasn't a disney film and you would think that would be obvious but the people in my survey who knew that Marvel was part of Disney. Not everybody did, but the people who knew that, some of them had a problem with uh, Deadpool and said, oh, "How how could Disney be releasing Deadpool? It, it was it's you know it's it's, it's effing and blinding. It's swearing. It's, it's bloody. It's awful." But they don't realise that it's not Disney, but now it's going to be Disney. So yeah, it's it's a tangled web. Um, if you forgive the Spider-Man pun. <laughs> That was very subtle, and I appreciated it. So uh, I had my microphone muted. But in any case, I I'm wondering, too, as far as what what types of topics are under the Disney umbrella versus not. One category that arguably is a, a staple in the Disney world is the Disney sports film. And unfortunately, in the past couple years, at least, we haven't seen much output on that front because there's been more of an emphasis on the bigger budget types of movies. Yeah. But I was really intrigued by a, a really astute point you made, which is that boxing is one sport that has never really been a focus of a Disney film, um, mm -hmm. perhaps because of the violent connotations. Do you, do you think that they ever will broach that sport or for that matter, other topics in society that simply have not been under the Disney fold? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I don't think there are too many topics that are off limits for Disney films, to be honest. Um, 
Yeah, boxing was an interesting omission, particularly when you think about all the massive, uh, critically acclaimed boxing films out there, like um, your Raging Bulls or your Rockies or your um, the, the Million Dollar Baby. Um, yeah, I, that was... So the, the sports films are an interesting uh, set of Disney films because I think I also mentioned in the thesis that they don't really do much business outside of North America um, and often they concentrate on sports that don't really um, they, well don't really get much attention outside of North America um, like American football um, so yeah they're, they're an interesting bunch because they're normally all the Disney films seem to be geared towards international audiences or at least as broad appeal as possible so as you say, that we've not seen many of these sports films in recent years. Uh, the mid-budget sort of sports film or mid-budget any kind of film, really, from Disney. Um, and again, across Hollywood, it's, it's sort of giving way to the big tentpole movies, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universes, the, the live-action remakes of um, animated classics. Because that's, that's, that's where the money is, that's where the billion-dollar box office is. Um, is Disney going to be able to produce a boxing film that uh, has a billion dollar box office? Probably not. Um, there's probably enough fighting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for them um, not to bother with a boxing film, I suppose. So I'm wondering, James, if you could share with me, at what point in developing your dissertation were you thinking about perhaps translating some of these topics to a book series? Uh, yeah, so in the first place, a PhD was never my plan, but it just kind of emerged organically. Um, and I never thought I would be able to uh, write a book. Well, not able to. I don't think I would ever be able to write a book and anyone would want to read it. <laughs> um, I'm in the strange situation where uh, I'm talking to someone who's read both my dissertation and my book, and I don't know if there are, other than me, I don't know if. if, if uh, there anyone else uh, who can say that. Um, so as I said, for my dissertation, I collected a lot of information on 390 Disney films. Um, and I collected information from uh, various sources, such as Internet Movie Database, um, the Disney A to Z official encyclopedia, and the uh, associated D23 website. Um, and I collected information such as running times and uh, the genres that IMDb um, associates with each Disney film. Um, I collected things like uh, the identities of the directors, um, the lead cast, so that I could then turn that into graphs and things to show there are this many animated films or uh, there are this many Disney films directed by women. Um, there are so many Disney comedies, etc. And so I had all of this information and I thought, oh, I could do something with this. I could put this into um, a book that doesn't already exist. <laughs> because there's a lot of information about Disney sort of out there in various books, various websites, it's kind of scattered. But I kind of almost wrote this book for myself because I, I wanted a chronological record of Disney's films so that I could easily see um, what came when, and also easily see what's available where. 
because I like physical media, um, DVDs, CDs, books, etc. And I didn't always know what was in my collection. And so I kind of, you know, I wanted a resource that I could use myself. And I thought, well, if I can use it and I want to use it, maybe this will be helpful for other people. Uh, so as part of my research, I spoke to Bob McLean, who is the um, publisher of Theme Park Press, who've released so many Disney books. Um, and I spoke to him to ask him about, uh, I interviewed him for my for my research, just to ask him about sort of, you know, why he set up Theme Park Press and um, about the, the audiences for his books. But because I'd already spoken to him, I thought, oh, he, maybe he would be interested in this book idea I've got. So I approached him. Um, he said, yeah, that sounds great. Send me a sample. And then I got a contract to write a book. And uh, so book one, well, I started writing book one, don't tell my supervisors, while I was finishing off my, my PhD um, dissertation. Um, I think not long after, before I'd finished book one, I got a contract for book two. Um, and just today I've been correcting the proofs for book two. Uh, so volume one covers movies, volume two covers um, TV movies and anthology uh, TV shows. Volume three, I have just submitted the manuscript to the publisher, and that's going to be about shorts from 1922 until this year. That's animated shorts, live action shorts, um, and everything in between. And then I've just uh, happily signed a contract for volume four, which is going to sort of capture a lot of the stuff that wasn't in books one, two, and three. So I'm going to have a look at the Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures output. Um, but also um, going to have a think about um, stage musicals and um, theme parks and, and think about the books and, and physical media associated with those. Um, yeah, so I'm quite enjoying putting these books together. I say it's not something I ever expected to be able to do, but uh, yeah, I've had some good feedback. Well, that, well, that's so awesome, and I know I'll be looking forward to, to seeing those future editions uh, as well. I one, one thing that came to mind when you said that the second volume is going to be on TV movies, um, are you familiar, and perhaps you, you may already be, the, there was a book, I think it was by, I want to say it's Bill Cotter, maybe? It was from the 90s. It was called The Wonderful World of Disney Television. On the shelf next to me here. <laughs> Because I know that was, and mind you, so much has changed over the past couple decades, but I know up until um, like the mid-late 90s, that was like a, a big resource on the TV shows and films um, from the company. Yes, I, I uh, have to admit I did use that book in my research. I used it in conjunction with um, the Disney A2Z Official Encyclopedia and various other um, sources from books to websites. Um, including sort of the Disney Wiki, uh, so I, I tried to cross-check information as much as possible. Sometimes uh, one of these books has missing information that the other one has, so that was part of my part of my my job as well, I suppose, in writing these books was gathering these disparate bits of information and bring pulling them together uh, um, and producing something maybe a little bit more comprehensive. I mean, it's not comprehensive in terms of you can throw away your official encyclopedia or your wonderful world of Disney television. 
because uh, my books tell you a lot of the headline figures, but if you want to go and find out more about the, the, those uh, particular, any particular film or TV movie, then you can go to the books that are listed in my book. Um, and then, yeah, you can find out more yourself. Very cool. So complimentary resources and certainly building upon uh, what these other ones have accomplished because again the game has changed so much over the past 20 years like I was uh, even reading through your dissertation and I know you made a, a brief reference to Leonard Maltin's really seminal book the Disney films but the mm. last the last edition of that was nearly 20 years ago so mm. a lot has even changed in terms of what has been chronicled in in those venues yeah it's true it's, it's a shame um, Leonard Maltin's book in particular hasn't been updated but I suppose what that book does and what so many books do is that um, the the most content is, is about everything that's released during Walt's life uh, and so often from 1967 until today there's, there's a, a big gap. Um, I know Leonard Moulton in his book has uh, written about films released after Walt's time but the amount of information he produces is not nearly as much as for each of the individual films uh, during Walt's, Walt's time. Um, and that's, I suppose, one of the things I wanted to do with Disney Connections and Collections is to sort of treat every release equally. Um, and also kind of to point out that, look, Disney doesn't actually, pre doesn't actually treat all of its releases equally. <laughs> if that uh, makes uh, some kind of sense there, in, in that I wanted to show everything that's been released, not just things during Walt's time or just the animated films, but the sort of the, the forgotten bits and pieces of the, um, like a victory through air powers or uh, what else I'm trying to, like the straight story, um, Disney's David Lynch film. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of just random little bits yes. of, in, in Disney history that I, I wanted to make sure was in there um, and, and to be as comprehensive as possible because a lot of the resources that currently exist just aren't and, and that's yeah so that, that sort of drove me as well well I, I'm, I'm glad you addressed that actually that was one of my questions as far as what are some of the more difficult or hard harder to find films but in, in terms of just procuring that information about some of these really small projects that have been forgotten were, were there any difficulties that that you faced in trying to figure out okay did did this film ever get released in on this type of platform or whatever the case may be yes yeah so there are one or two gaps in, in the books um i think the easiest book to uh, research was volume one movies because so much has been written about disney's films um, but the TV movies, there's just not as much information out there. I, I, I can't think of um, more than maybe one or two books that address Disney TV movies and aren't often there just concentrated on um, the Disneyland's uh, TV anthologies and, and the ones that came after. Um, so yeah, there's not a lot of information officially sort of Disney produced or, or otherwise really about TV movies, about uh, directed video movies as well. They get overlooked quite a lot. Um, so I've not seen every Disney, well, I've not seen any every Disney movie full stop, 
but I've not seen every uh, direct-to-video movie. But I have watched all of the animated sequels, and I think there's some gems in there. Um, and it would be nice if someone had written about those, but uh, <laughs> I have sort of in a small way. Um, but I just like to learn more about the, the sort of the, the animated sequels and the, the ethos behind them. Um, the shorts as well. There, are, there's information about some shorts out there. There's an excellent book um, about uh, silly symphonies and a fantastic book on um, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and lots on um, Mickey Mouse. But then there are lots of shorts as well that have been released that just are a bit more. Well, they're harder to find um, and, and watch, but they're also hard to find any information out about, even like who directed XYZ shorts. Or, um, yeah, so that, that's been tricky, trying to pull together the, the shorts information and, and the TV information, because there's just not as much out there to, to draw for me to draw upon. Well, I, I can imagine there's difficulty, too, when a lot of different short film projects eventually appear in other contexts. So, for instance, one thing that I immediately think of is House of Mouse, which was a, a TV series in the early 2000s, and they recycled a lot of uh, shorts from both Walt's era and even from, uh, I think it was called Mickey Mouse Works, which was an animated series that barely lasted in the late 90s. So it's like sometimes shorts kind of find themselves in different places over time. Yes, the shorts was interesting because I had to think about what content do I want to put in this book? Do I want to list every time each short has appeared on any TV show ever? I thought that would be a Herculean task, so I decided against that. Um, and that's why I kind of narrowed, uh, narrowed down uh, what I was putting into the, the shorts book about... Um, I narrowed it down to sort of where you could see the shorts, I think, on DVD and Blu-ray and um, also on, on digital media. Although I kind of regret putting the digital section into the earlier books. I've, I'm, I'm shifting away from it because now that Disney Plus is coming out, the streaming service, um, the places to find Disney films and shorts may change that you may only be able to find them on Disney Plus. So everything changes so quickly in the digital world. Um, that's my one regret with the book. Well, and I was going to ask you um, before we conclude what your thoughts are of how Disney Plus is going to change the game in terms of people's access to Disney films. I know in the initial announcement of, uh, back in April, they mentioned that certain, certain titles in the library will be part of day one. But wh where do you think that's going to go in terms of Disney's library of content? Well, I don't think everything will be available. Because um, Disney's... Ever, ever since the early days of just releasing films into theatres, um, there's always been this sort of that vault aspect, hasn't there, where uh, the film disappears for a few years and then is re-released into cinemas. Um, and then later on, the, the bigger films will come out on video and then disappear for a few years. And then the same on DVD and Blu-ray. Although nowadays... If you miss it on its release, then um, you can just pick it up on eBay or you know Amazon Marketplace or something, so it's less of an issue. But you still get that in terms of not every Disney film will be available um, on Netflix or uh, on um, the Disney Channel, etc. So maybe there will be a bit more curation with uh, Disney Plus in that 
certain films will come out for a little while and then they'll disappear. Uh, and then perhaps maybe that will be a selling point for those who aren't already paying for Disney Plus to come back because we've got the Lion King back again, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, Disney Plus raised some questions for me when I was finishing off Volume 2 because I'm not quite sure how to categorize films that might appear on Disney Plus, like the what's upcoming, the, the Lady and the Tramp remake, live action remake. Um, would you classify that with the TV movies or would you classify that with the director video movies? Uh, what, 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 how does streaming um, affect what the type of film is? It's, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting as to what appears where. Right. Well, and it makes me think of the argument of when people say Netflix is TV, it becomes very complicated. Or mm -hmm. films produced by Amazon is that, you know, some of those through Amazon Studios, some of them are theatrical. Some things are, uh, I believe, just directly on the platform. So the lines become very ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see also how Disney incorporates 20th Century Fox into their workings particularly with disney plus from what i've little i've read about it i've not read a lot about it um it seems like the purchase of 20th century fox was to provide a lot more content for um the disney plus service but there's so much content that disney's already got that it's, like I say it's probably not going to appear on there i mean i've seen people talking about uh, the big one is always uh, song of the south i'm not going to get into it but um that's never been released on home media in the US, as, uh, as far as I know. And it's unlikely to, because I think it's the myth has overtaken the actual film itself. Um, but that's not going to appear on there. And then I saw something about, oh, so they're going to edit Dumbo, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if that's going to appear on there. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether, how, how curated um, this film library is. I doubt everything's going to be on there. It would be nice if everything could be on there and all of the old anthology shows, etc. Um, yeah, this is why I like physical media. Nobody's going to decide to take the right away from me to have that physical media. They'd have to break into my house and take it from my shelf. Um, they can't just strip it off Netflix or strip it off Disney Plus. Um, so my hope, my one hope, is that physical media continues um, alongside uh, Disney Plus, and then Disney Plus doesn't replace physical media. I, I completely concur because you know, think of that five-year-old kid or even twenty-five-year-old kid who falls in love with Disney's new uh, remake of Lady and the Tramp, but doesn't want to pay for the Disney Plus subscription fee over the course of a year, like. I doubt they're going to translate that into a physical home release or a digital release on iTunes for that matter. But what a shame that is in not having that option. So yeah. it becomes tricky. Yeah, perhaps actually they will. Because um, it's another revenue stream. Because if they haven't got your money from paying for Disney Plus, they want your money somehow. So maybe they will put it out on a disc. <laughs> Uh, I guess, yeah, maybe maybe some folks will have to lead that campaign. But uh, I, I do want to uh, ask one final question before our uh, set of 
common questions at the end of every episode. You, you made a brief reference earlier to the direct-to-video films and some films that don't always get the most attention. Are there are there any special ones in the mix that you'd like folks or would encourage folks to check out? Any particular films to check out? Um, kind of among like the direct-to-video or ones that are just really obscure. I say I quite enjoyed some of the uh, direct-to-video um, sequels and midquels and prequels to uh, the animated classics line. I know that, that they're often just sort of dismissed as being poor imitations, but I think you can find some interesting sort of experimentation in some of the films, particularly like The Lion King um, 1 and a half or The Lion King 3, depending what region you're in. That, that does just an interesting thing by going back into The Lion King and doing sort of Rashomon effect. Um, which one are the ones that are, again, I'm looking at my DVDs on the shelves. Um, I quite enjoyed as well The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginning. There's uh, some excellent voice work in there, some great songs. Um, it's basically uh, a Little Mermaid version of uh, Footloose. Um, the Return to Neverland, uh, although I think that got released into theatres. Again, I enjoyed uh, aspects of Return to Neverland because it, it, it was set quite explicitly during wartime. I thought that was an interesting thing to see in a, in a Disney animation. Oh, yeah. That was uh, interesting. Yeah. So I think that there are some... Disney just takes some risks in some places um, that they're maybe not given the credit for. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, I would say check out but everyone's probably seen it, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because there's this excellent actor called James Mason. Um, so I have an affinity with that film. <laughs> I was going to say, you're definitely tight with that film for that very reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had I, I had a laugh when, when I uh, recognized the connection there. I'm like, wow, how cool. <laughs> yeah, for so long I didn't have any idea who James Mason was. Um, and I think it was only in the last two or three years when I actually watched 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is terrible for someone who's... Uh, um, so into Disney, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I find that the people who know who James Mason is are either of a certain age, or they are uh, committed film fans. Um, yeah, kids today they don't know who he is. So, so I guess that begs the question: should should we also be calling you Captain Nemo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I usually well. My friends call me Dr. Disney, so that's fine. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So so James, a.k.a. Dr. Disney, with every episode of Notably Disney, I ask my guests some questions. So this is the segment called Ask Them My Questions and Get Some Answers. Okay. One of the best lines ever uttered by Ariel, for sure, especially since we know she doesn't talk enough in her film. Uh, <laughs> yeah which is uh, definitely a, a point that I, I'm going to be thinking about a lot now per what you shared in your, your dissertation about uh, voice and, and representation in that regard. So the set of questions includes three standard music-related questions, okay. two, two book-related questions, right. and then one random Disney question. So that one changes with every episode. So okay. James, are you... Say again? <laughs> I hope it's not trivia-based. It is not trivia-based, because <laughs> I, would, I would not want to embarrass anybody, I promise. 
I already a, went to a um, Disney pub quiz recently, and my team came second, and so I've not been able to live that down. Oh, jeez. That's, <laughs> that's unfortunate. I know, right? <laughs> but, hey, you have to love those pub quizzes. That's, that's always one of my favorite things about, uh, like, Disney cruises, for instance. They have really good trivias. So, right. <laughs> um, Okay, so starting off with music questions. So, first one, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Ooh, I think that'll be The Lion King. Uh, yeah, I remember singing, to, singing along to Lion King a lot, um, particularly Hakuna Matata, although that is probably my least favorite now. Uh, yeah, The Lion King soundtrack. It <laughs> uh, was kind of ironic on our a previous episode of the show we had on a professor at University of Maryland, Paul Cody, and we talked about Hakuna. We talked about Lion King and Hakuna Matata, and I'm like, "Yeah, I I don't love it as much anymore." <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, "Be Prepared" would be the song that I would uh, champion from the Lion King more than any other, I think, because it's it's another one that's overlooked. <laughs> yeah, that is true. We don't hear the on repeat in the theme parks, <laughs> so, uh, unless you know it's like a, a villain's night. But second question is, what Disney song? most recently got stuck in your head? Well, today, actually, I've been listening to the soundtrack to the new Aladdin. Um, I'm just enjoying that a lot, a lot more than I expected to. I enjoyed the the film more than I expected to as well. I'm someone who's not... um, I I always go into any film, whether it's Disney film or anything, film, expecting, hoping to like it. Um, and I will always give the Disney remakes a chance. Um, I know a lot of people just write them off, but I think, yeah, the, what's been in my head at the moment has uh, been the new Aladdin soundtrack because I think it, it does some very interesting things um, with the, with the original music. And, and Will Smith is not trying to be Robin Williams; he puts his own spin on things. And also. Uh, Alan Menken is still involved, and he is just like a god. Oh yes, I I bow down to to my Menken shrine because <laughs> <laughs> he he can do no wrong in my book. But uh, so I guess that begs the question: with with the Aladdin soundtrack, is there a particular song in the new in the new version that you feel is particularly strong or notable? I was a big fan of uh, Prince Ali, actually. Yeah, yeah, whatever version of Prince Ali, uh, I, I do like that one. Again, it gets overshadowed by friends, uh, friends like me and uh, Whole New Worlds, but yeah, Prince Ali's got a lot to a lot to uh, appreciate about. It. Yeah, I was yeah I was kind of of the mindset while the singing for some of the actors could have been a bit stronger. I quite felt like they had a lot of fun with it, and that really translates as a as a listener or a viewer. So, um, I love Arabian Nights. I thought that was just really grand. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've done a really good job of updating that. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, and the lyric changes. Third mm. music uh, related question is mm-hmm. what What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Well, that's easy. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I know it's my favorite, but I also think it's. Um, one that's overlooked. Um, it might shock you to know that when I people find out that I've 
done a PhD about Disney and I've written books about Disney, that they ask me what my favourite Disney film is. Um, I get that question a lot. Um, and when I say The Hunchback of Notre Dame, probably half the people I say that to have never seen it. Um, and I find that shocking. And it's just fantastic. I was lucky enough to go and see um, performance at the Royal Albert Hall earlier this year, Disney on Broadway. And uh, sure. there's a singer there. Um, uh, I think the name is Anton Zetterholm. And he sang um, Out There. And that just made my night, my year. It's just There's nothing better than, than Out There. It's, I've, I've sung it at karaoke as well. And I think I can do a decent version of it. But... Uh, <laughs> Not not good enough for the Albert Hall. Well, I, I might have to ask you back on the podcast just to do a Hunchback co- <laughs> concert because I'm totally game for that. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny too, James. Uh, I'd say two, if not three, guests already on the show have said the same answer that Hunchback has the un- most underrated music. So you are not alone in that book. Excellent. It's just got such a rich, powerful, oh, I don't know muscular the right word i'm not very good at talking about music but it's just it's just uh and the, the soundtrack to the stage musical as well whether it be the german version or the, uh, the american version oh, i can just listen to on repeat if you'd asked me which uh soundtrack i listened to as an adult most probably any version of the hunchback and Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah it's and i feel like uh michael arden's rendition in the uh original cast recording for the stage adaptation is just brilliant too yeah i'm totally with you on that not that i'm supposed to insert my own opinion uh (laughs) for for the segment but i'm in alignment uh so moving over to books which is uh certainly uh your domain other than other than your own books uh what is the most recent disney book that you've read oh that's a difficult question. I don't think I've read a Disney book for a little while. Um, hmm. I think one of the can I can I change the question slightly and say one of the one of yeah. the best Disney books uh, I've read is um, the name is escaping me. Uh, there was a film version of it as well about um, the young boy uh, with autism. Um, oh, Life Animated, yeah. Yes, Life Animated. I know it's not directly a book about Disney, um, but that one had a massive impact on me, and, and uh, the film did as well. I, I thought that was fantastic, and I think everyone should read that. It, it just sort of speaks to the power of Disney um, in a different way to I've seen it anywhere else, really. Yeah. Well... I, I give in total alignment there. I, a few years ago, I saw a, doc, uh, an, a documentary screening of the film uh, with the director in attendance, and um, the, who's, who's the father of, of the the boy um, who's at the center of the film, and it was just absolutely powerful and fantastic. And mo- most of my research is on uh, autism in higher education, and I'm part of the autism community, so it's a it's a really profound film for a lot of us in the autism world too. Yeah. That's cool. So let me ask you then, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, so something that you're not already writing, <laughs> I should emphasize, what would it be? What what might be next for you? Or what could you see yourself writing about in the future beyond uh, this series? 
Hmm. I don't know. That's tricky. Um, because I am kind of an independent scholar and I'm not, I'm not affiliated to university, um, and I'm based in the UK. I don't have access to a, a lot of, well, any um, sort of you know Disney archives. I'd love to get stuck into the Disney archives. Um, a dream would be, as I've mentioned earlier, sort of to write something about the director to DVD director video output that's um, nobody else seems to have written much about specifically the, the spin-off films from the animated classics. I think there's there's probably a story to be written there. Um, there's something about Disney Toon Studios and what Disney Animation Studios that's uh, yeah that, that's gone unwritten. That, that would be a dream. I don't know if it's realizable. That would that would be fascinating because it's kind of a, a chapter and component of Disney that is not only overlooked but very dismissed in a lot of ways. So, uh, like I remember at one point before, like right before Disney bought Pixar, they were making sequels to like uh, direct-to-video sequels in produ- early stages of production for. Uh, those Pixar films, and that was eventually shut down because of buying Pixar and then Lasseter coming in, among other things. But that would be fascinating, too. Yeah, I think so. Particularly, as you say, there'd be an interesting story to tell about how everything ended, because there were well, there, there were sequels to things like Aristocats, um, uh, Dumbo as well, I think, uh, in production. At, at yeah. Some, at, uh, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to find out how that all came to an end and the, the thought processes behind that. Oh, I definitely think you'd be a, a good person to handle it. And, and certainly we know these types of topics would not be examined by people inside the company. So uh, yeah. comes down to, to good scholars. So final question. It's a random question. What is one live action Disney film that you think deserves a remake Live action Disney film. Oh, that's interesting. Because they don't seem to remake the live action ones very often. Um, I think it's it, it is happening, isn't it? The black hole. That's that's quite a. That would be interesting to see with a, a lot of money behind it. Um, thinking about an, an older film. That could be really awkward and say the Song of the South. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Um, it'd be good if, I know it was partly a Paramount film, partly a, a Disney film, but having another go at Popeye and trying to get that right, that would be quite good. I'd like to see that done with Alan Menken behind the music. Oh, that'd be interesting, huh? Mm. So the question is, would Will, Will, Will Smith play Popeye? <laughs> but yes, that would be a different uh, way to go. And who else you would get doing Popeye? But yeah, yeah, I like that idea. Hey, you know what? He can he can obviously channel some of the enthusiasm of Robin Williams via Genie, so yeah. uh, I wouldn't doubt him now. Yeah, yeah, he's probably got the muscles for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very true, right. <laughs> we, we just have to find out if he enjoys his spinach, so... <laughs> Well, it's been a it's been such a pleasure to to have you on Notably Disney, James. And uh, I know now we have at least three more volumes to anticipate uh, from Disney Connections and Collections. So, uh, a lot's on the horizon. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, everyone's welcome to follow me on James Does Disney on uh, Twitter um, to find out 
when the new books will be out and what I'm up to. Great. Could you also, um, while you're at it, could you share your website and email as well? Uh, yes. So my website is www.jamesdoes.co.uk and my um, email address for Disney purposes is jamesdoesdisney at outlook.com. Well, fantastic. So thank you so much again for, for joining me on the show. And uh, yeah, let's hope uh, listeners definitely check out your first in a, a very, what's going to be a long series of books <laughs> on uh, Disney connections and collections. Thanks again, James. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate James joining me on the show today. As you can tell, it was a pretty fun conversation to have, and I encourage you to check out Disney Connections and Collections Volume 1 movies, many more to come, and you can find that on Amazon. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H. M-A-N reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.